KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, this week is the 10th anniversary of Occupy Wall Street, and we are the 99%. We'll have an assessment of the achievements and limitations of that movement with Alan Minsky. Now he's Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. At the time, he was an Occupy activist. But first, maybe you heard the news in the California recall Tuesday, about 64% voted against the recall in favor of keeping Democrat Gavin Newsom as governor. Only about 36% voted with the Republicans. For comment, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital, Hi, Harold. It's a good day in California today. Hi, John, and indeed it is. These results were not a surprise, but it was still pretty satisfying to see that the Republicans haven't gotten anywhere in California by following Donald Trump. No, and actually, they haven't gotten anywhere in California for a very long time. If uh, you look at uh, elections going back at least to 2010 or, or, or even 2008, uh, whenever it's a, basically a Democrat versus a Republican in a statewide election, we're, almost regardless of whether we're talking about Senate, governor, lieutenant governor, treasurer, controller, what bookkeeper, whatever, <laughs> uh, uh, the Democrat wins usually by about a 60 to 40 margin, which is pretty close to the margin by which Gavin Newsom survived uh, yesterday's, uh, not yesterday's, earlier this week's recall. Uh, on the Republican side, Larry Elder, the black radio conservative <clears throat> who's been on the air for 30 years, uh, now seems to be the leader of the California Republican Party. At least he got four times as many votes as any other Republican candidate for governor. As, uh, is this really the case that Larry uh, Elder, radio host, black radio host, is now the head of the Republican Party of California? Well, it's not like there are very many plausible alternatives, which is part of the problem of Republicans in California. I'm, I'm reminded, I'm going to botch this line, but there's a line in Milton's Paradise Lost where Satan essentially says, better uh, to be a leader in hell than, you know, a subordinate in heaven. And uh, essentially, uh, if he wants to be, Larry Elder is that leader in hell, this satanic <laughs> figure. Uh, I mean, uh, on, on the one hand, yes, of, of those who voted in part two of the recall election for an alternative to Gavin Newsom, he, he got close to half of the vote. But if you compare uh, his vote, his actual numerical vote, to the numerical vote, the number of people who voted against recalling Gavin Newsom, he, he falls short of that total by about three and a half million votes. And that's with only two thirds of the vote counted. So that's just gonna go up, uh, uh, even, if his, uh, if, even if Newsom's percentage goes down a little. Uh, so yeah, I mean, if the strongest candidate running against Newsom next year for a regular reelection is someone who ends up trailing Newsom by four to five million votes in the recall, that suggests the Republicans have a certain problem. 
I will say one thing that surprised me about Larry Elder and on Tuesday night, he conceded. He said he had lost. Uh, he did not say there had been massive voter fraud and he'd actually won the recall. Uh, this is a kind of progress for California Republicans, I think. Well, it's kind of progress for the, the entire Trumpian movement, but I think the margin was just too large, uh, was, 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 you know, gaping. Uh, you know, uh, for for anyone to really seriously allege voter fraud on a scale that could have uh, affected the election. Uh, there, there was an old, uh, in the mid-1930s, there was a Broadway musical called Jumbo, and at one point, uh, it was actually held in, 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 not in a regular theater, but the Hippodrome, so we could accommodate animals. And at one point, Jimmy Durante was crossing the stage with an elephant, and uh, so supposedly surreptitiously, and someone said, what are you doing with that elephant? And Durante said, what elephant? And, you know, <laughs> you kind of have to have a what elephant attitude to allege uh, voter fraud, uh, you know, when, when the, uh, your defeat is, is so absolutely elephantine. <laughs> uh, you wrote at prospect.org on Wednesday, the recall became for the Democrats the electoral equivalent of the out of town... <clears throat> the electoral equivalent of the out-of-town previews of a Broadway show, speaking of Jimmy Durante, where the yeah. show's writers, composers, and directors find out which parts work and which fall flat. Uh, what did we learn about the national picture of the Democrats from the experience of California? Of course, California is not a typical state. It's overwhelmingly democratic. That's true, and the nation is not overwhelmingly democratic, but there were some themes that resonated so strongly with the electorate and not simply with Democrats uh, that I don't doubt other Democrats will uh, pick up on them when, uh, when they're on the ballot in 2022, uh, next year. Uh, above all, uh, the uh, uh, importance of taking safety precautions uh, while there's a pandemic out there. Uh, mask mandates and things like that were broadly popular, and uh, opposition to mask mandates completely characterized uh, the uh, Republicans who voted for the recall. According to the one exit poll that was taken, 96% uh, of the Republicans who voted yes on the recall were opposed to any mass mandates in schools. So uh, th this suggests to me that if you look nationally at swing states and swing districts, the kinds of positions and even, you know, states that even are a little less than swing from a Democratic perspective, the kind of positions taken by uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, for instance, you know, trying to outlaw uh, all uh, school district uh, mass mandates, uh, really work against the Republicans. Trumpism works against the Republicans in general, uh, again, in, in, in swing states and districts, as uh, you know, I think this election in California made quite clear. Former Governor uh, Gray Davis had a great, uh, a great line. Uh, he said, Larry Elder was a gift from God for the Democrats. Um, the implication is if the Republicans had better candidates, they would do better in elections, not a really a original idea. Uh, will the Republicans in 2022 be foolish enough to run similar Trump-like candidates for the House and Senate seats that are up? 
highly unlikely. I mean, there was in the Republican field of alternatives, there was one candidate who really genuinely by today's standards was a moderate, and that was former San Diego mayor Kevin Falconer, who got all of 9% of the, uh, uh, the, the vote, which was at most one-fifth and probably less than one-fifth of, of elders' vote. Uh, to be Republican today means basically you're in this little hermetically sealed cult. Uh, and if you're in hermetically sealed cult, you're not about to nominate someone who is outside your cult. And that's where the Republican Party is at. It's also, by the way, one thing uh, that uh, Gray Davis, I'm sure, understands very well is that he really was in... Let's remind us, remind us about who yeah. Gray Davis is. That, uh, Gray Davis was the Democratic governor who had been elected in 1998 and re-elected in 2002, but who was recalled in 2003 and replaced with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, two things about Arnold Schwarzenegger. First, he was, relatively speaking, a moderate Republican who has since become an anti-Trump Republican. And had there been a normal electoral process, someone with Arnold Schwarzenegger's politics could never have won the Republican primary. But recalls don't have primaries. Also, Schwarzenegger was such a big deal that that's why I said someone with his politics, not Arnold himself. But there are only a handful of Arnolds of that. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Davis would have won, I think, had someone like Larry Elder been the Republican alternative. And in a normal election, given where the California Republicans were in 2003 and still are in 2021, someone like Larry Elder would be the Republican nominee. Well, all of all of our talk up to this point has been very happy, but you say in your day after piece at prospect.org that there was one troubling result for Democrats in the California recall. Please explain. Yeah, in the Edison exit poll, uh, it showed that Latino men, uh, you know, voted against the recall by a very, very narrow margin, like 53% against 47%. Four. And, you know, that suggests uh, a couple of things. It kind of confirms the uh, drift of Latino men uh, that we saw uh, towards the Republican alternatives uh, towards Trump in the 2020 presidential election and in some congressional district elections as well. So then you start thinking about, well, what do in particular Latino working class men have in common with white working class men who we know to be at this juncture, the uh, staunchest part of the Republican coalition. And I suspect there's an overlap of some cultural beliefs. I suspect that, uh, you know, there may be a shared belief among both those groups that the Democrats have somehow embraced ideas that threaten uh, a, a kind of patriarchal order. Um, so there, there, there are real issues there, and it's not entirely clear how Democrats can address them. I think passing legislation in Congress like the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill, um, you know, would, would go some way, uh, not necessarily a big way, but some way towards bringing some of those folks uh, back into uh, Democratic ranks. I just like to emphasize here that Latino men still, by a significant majority, voted, Demo voted for uh, Gavin Newsom against the recall. 
uh, and also for Joe Biden and against Donald Trump, with the exception of a, of a few specific places and a few specific subgroups of Latino men. So it's nothing like the situation with white working class men who are overwhelmingly uh, Trump, Trump-ish. No, that's correct. Um, meanwhile, meanwhile, back in our nation's capital, um, you mentioned the Build Back Better bill and the infrastructure bill. Uh, it's time for today's reconciliation report from Joe Manchin land. Uh, the Democrats have been at work making their $3.5 trillion uh, reconciliation bill smaller, as Joe Manchin suggested was necessary to get his support. Unfortunately, they're not only making the total smaller, they're talking about abandoning the most progressive part of paying for it. So tell us where we stand right now. Uh, this is in right. the House. This is in the this House. This is the House Ways and Means Committee, which is headed by Massachusetts Congressman Richard Neal, who has been known uh, as a, uh, you know, something of a pal of, uh, of big business interests. And so there was no wealth tax component to what the House Ways and Means Committee produced earlier this week. Uh, and uh, there were also, you know, some reductions in, in other top tax rates as well. Uh, from the looks of things, something better than that and more fair than that uh, is likely to come out of uh, the Senate Finance Committee uh, in, in their deliberations. Uh, you know, more, more taxes that, that really hit uh, wealth and uh, corporations that have so much money they don't know what to do with it. In that latter category, uh, Sherrod Brown, the progressive Democratic senator from Ohio, has suggested uh, a, a tax uh, when corporations buy back their own stock uh, rather than using uh, funds to actually invest further or give their workers raises or build a new factory or et cetera. Uh, so uh, I, I think something better than what we saw from Houseways and Means will come out of the Senate. Again, this is everything is subject to the kind of complicated negotiations that are, are, are going on between uh, Manchin and his ilk and the rest of the Democratic Party and the White House. Um, your uh, colleague at the Prospect, David Dayan, wrote about the basic problem the Democrats face in cutting down their $3.5 trillion bill. This is a huge bill that has dozens of programs in it, which uh, supporters are deeply committed to different parts of it. The danger is that everything will cut be cut back uh, some, and that will, uh, as opposed to prioritizing what are the most significant, what are the most important parts, and we'll end up, he said, we could end up, he says, uh, with, you know, inadequate coverage of lots of too, too many things. Uh, as Pramila Jayapal of the Congressional Progressive Caucus said, our investments need to be number one transformative and number two felt immediately people need to feel their lives are being transformed how are we doing on that front right now well we'll see i mean i think david my colleague uh rightly termed this a kind of sophie's choice dilemma uh do you sacrifice um uh one of your children uh, one particular thing, so that we the have other, to... <laughs> so, so that the other, you know, you know, survives unscathed, or do you cut off 
uh, uh, you know, both of their right arms. Uh, that that that's kind of what we're looking at. Uh, what we're looking at here now. My uh, another prospect colleague of mine, Bob Cutner, has written that uh, the Democrats are also considering uh, uh, the uh, uh, the child tax credit and relabeling it a tax cut. In which case, you can still get a hell of a lot of money to American families in need of money. Um, and, you know, reduce the overall cost of the reconciliation bill by this, frankly, sleight of hand, uh, you know, to a level that, you know, Joe Manchin and hopefully Kristen Cinema would support. So th- there are a lot of balls in the air and we really don't know yet where where they're going to come down. And there's also news on the on the voting rights front. We desperately need a voting rights bill to become law in the next year. And Joe Manchin has been working on one. Um there's the Freedom to Vote Act, uh, which is a kind of a watered down version of what the House proposed, but still valuable in many ways. What do we know about what Joe Manchin says he will uh, sponsor in the Senate? Well, I mean, he said he will sponsor uh, this bill, uh, which also adds a response to the new situation of Republican legislatures now aggregate, you know, uh, claiming for themselves essentially the right to overturn election results. It, it, it bans that um, uh, and that he'll support it. And he says he'll try to get Republican votes for it. Well, of course, there won't be a single Republican vote for it. Uh, they will they will block it. And then the question comes, uh, <coughs> having gotten that far, will Joe Manchin be willing to suspend the filibuster for this one uh, bill? Now, you, you can do that. You can vote by a majority to suspend the filibuster for an individual piece of legislation as well as in general. Uh, so we'll see if he does that. Then there's some talk that, well, he'd only modify to the extent that he would require a talking filibuster rather than, you know, M- McConnell simply wa- wa- raising his hand and saying no. Uh, whether that really will be sufficient is, is highly questionable. So we, we await to see that too. But you have to believe that Schumer and Biden are uh, have worked to get Manchin, you know, to the point at least of considering getting rid of the filibuster for this one, this one bill, which is after all, in some part, his own handiwork. And the bill, let me let me just ex- summarize a little bit. Um, that does include that all states must have a minimum of fifteen consecutive dates of early voting. Uh, universal uh, vote by mail. Everyone can request, everyone in the United States can request a mail ballot under this bill. Uh, New automatic voter registration uh, programs, making election day a national holiday, and some measures to reduce uh, partisan gerrymandering. Uh, All those are things we really need. Oh, indeed. No, I mean, uh, it it leaves out the campaign finance aspect of the House bill and other important uh, parts of, of that bill, but in and of itself, there's there's nothing there we don't really need and really like. So if we call this the Joe Manchin Freedom to Vote Act, doesn't he have to really pull out all the stops to get the Joe Manchin bill passed by the Senate? Yeah, well, from your lips, John, I mean, uh, uh, you know, the, the perversities of, of Manchin and Cinema and uh, whatever allies they may have are uh, run pretty deep. So we shall see. But one can only hope 
that, uh, you know, agreeing to do that and, and uh, building a monument to him as big as the Lincoln Memorial <laughs> on the mall uh, is, is a price we, we you know, will gladly pay if we, uh, if, if we get this bill through. The perversities of Joe Manchin, Harold Meyerson. Read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. And always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Ten years ago this week, a small group of young radicals declared, we are the 99%, and set up camp in Zuccotti Park in Manhattan's financial district. They called themselves Occupy Wall Street. They focused on challenging skyrocketing inequality and entrenched corporate power. But instead of a few people protesting for a few days, the movement exploded. Hundreds of thousands of people joined Occupy camps in more than 600 American towns and cities. They lasted in some cases for months, transformed the left in America, and gave rise to a new generation of political activists. Polls showed that a wide majority of Americans supported Occupy. Then the camps were shut down and Occupy was over. We want to assess the legacy and the lessons of the Occupy movement, perhaps the most unexpected success of the left in living memory, but also one with some flaws and weaknesses. For comment, we turn to Alan Minsky. He's executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, a grassroots organization that works with the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and he was with, <clears throat> and he was with Occupy Wall Street in the beginning, in the lead up to Zuccotti Park, and then with Occupy LA a bit later. Alan, welcome back. Thank you so much, John. Yeah, I was uh, both being a journalist and an activist journalist in those days. And um, I had a peculiar experience in that rather unique uh, relationship to Occupy Wall Street. And as, as you said, I was involved in organizing uh, almost immediately after the call for a demonstration to take place in Lower Manhattan, dubbed already Occupy Wall Street, um, by Adbusters Magazine. They were the people who initially made the call for a demonstration on September 17th, uh, that it would be um, uh, you know, strategically placed after September 11th. Uh, the call was made inspired by the demonstrations that year, not only in Egypt and across the Arab Spring, but also uh, by the occupation of a central square in Madrid, um, Spain. Uh, there were demonstrations across um, much of the world uh, that were inspired by the Arab Spring that focused on what was at that time an incredibly deep global recession. Um, and uh, the call was thus made to uh, have a demonstration at the location of what was pretty much to this day is still accepted as the spark for the economic meltdown that informed the Great Recession, which was the activities uh, on Wall Street in particular their trading of assets uh, that were rooted in the American housing market that completely collapsed in 2007. Um, and so I had done an interview with a man named Michael White at Adbusters the previous November uh, about a project that they did called Buy Nothing Day, which is counter to Black Friday, where everybody buys uh, tons of stuff the day after 
Thanksgiving in the United States is the largest uh, uh, day of consumer gluttony in, in uh, the American calendar. And they uh, have always called or had called in the years leading up yeah, th- throughout the noughts years, uh, Adbusters, as they had maintained their popularity from the mid-90s through the noughts. One of the things that they did was to call for a buy-nothing day on, on this day of consumer gluttony. And so I did a special for KPFK Radio that would air on this holiday weekend, encouraging people to buy nothing. And it was made up of a, a basically an interview with Michael White interspersed with other uh, readings from recent Adbusters magazines. All of it amounted to a kind of critique of a global consumerist capitalist society in the wake of the Great Recession. And Mike enjoyed working on it. And then fast forward, uh, actually, then in, in, in February, I did a, a whole series called Building a Powerful Left in the United States. And Mike, again, I, I recontacted him, spoke to him again. Um, it, you know, I, I really had thought that 2011 was an important point to see if there could be a real left emerging in the United States. The Republicans had swept the midterm elections and Obama was not governing anywhere nearly as progressively as I think much of his base had hoped he would. And, um, and then I knew by 2012, the presidential election and all of its gravity would probably suck all the oxygen out of so much air, um, you know, uh, in American politics that 2011 was a year to act. So I interviewed Micah for that. And then I, I, I had, of course, a subscription to Adbusters, and I saw this call that was made uh, for a demonstration on September 17th. I called up Micah, and I got involved as a, as a sort of a organizer, not living in New York City with a lot of press contacts in New York and activist contacts in New York. And I spoke to people about it, got it on their radar screen. Um, Adbusters, but, mm-hmm. but in the end, Adbusters was not part of the yeah. Occupy camp in Zuccotti Park. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things I did, of course, is reaching out to, you know, progressive uh, news outlets, journalists, Democracy Now, et cetera. And I think I did facilitate uh, some some interviews leading up to September 17th. That was uh, you know, a few months after I'd sort of signed on to the help out on the project. And um, it uh, that helped, I think, draw a lot of people, those interviews, to the original demonstration. But in the weeks before, yes, Adbusters had, uh, had as actually as a, as a magazine, uh, been the lead organizers. And uh, they had sort of a team, and I wasn't in New York in, in early September, who were, you know, looking to try to grow this uh, particular event. Um, and it attracted a group of uh, largely anarchist-inflected activists and organizers who picked it up from them. And as anarchists and organizers, they said, wait a second, y'all from this journal in Vancouver, British Columbia. No, this is a non-hierarchical demonstration. And we really don't want to think of you guys as the, you know, yes, thank you for making the call. We appreciate, respect everything, but, you know, back off. We got it from here. We're we're local people and we're going to have this done non-hierarchically. And Adbusters, uh, uh, you know, graciously bowed out at that point as you know, in, in the press going forward, they periodically be mentioned as the people who called for the demonstration. And look, they did play a, a, absolutely. They, it wouldn't have happened without them. OK. Um, and I just had an assist in that process. And through the quirk of knowing Mike, I got involved very early. So once that happened and I heard about it from the people I knew who were attending the meetings in New York, checked in with with the people at Adbusters, understood it was true. I got involved by just joining the, the media team. And in the first weeks, uh, I mean, I look, I didn't, nobody expected this to go on like it did. Okay. Yeah. There, there are a lot of left-wing demonstrations that get called for. And, you know, it didn't specify Zuccotti Park. It did say that the idea was to stay. So what happened actually is they sort of marched around in lower Manhattan uh, and the you know, police would channel them here, channel them there. They couldn't get to Wall Street. They tried to get to Wall Street. 
Um, and I can't remember if they ever did get, you know, right on the famous stretch of Wall Street where you know, the, the statue of the bull is and everything. And I, I think they might have, but then they got channeled off it pretty quickly. And and then, and then they landed, at, they ended up somehow being channeled towards Zuccotti View Park and they decided to stay there. So they stayed there, you know, this really sort of, uh, you know, what would be a very uncomfortable place to have a camp. It's uh, got almost no green space whatsoever. It's all sort of a brick. Um, uh, some, you know, it's, it's just uh, hard surfaces and everything. But they stayed. And um, and I think what happened in the coming days was a lot of... Oh, go ahead. Uh, so, so they stayed. And that was the first distinctive thing here. A lot of people have talked about what Occupy did wrong, but I'd like to start with what they did right, what they accomplished, what we can learn from their success. And I think we should start here with the idea of occupying public space in an urban center and staying for a long time, which as you say, was not the original plan. It just developed that way. This was not in a demonstration or a protest march or a teach-in or, or a political campaign. Of course, the idea of occupation, as you say, was nothing new. There'd been Tahrir Square in Madrid that previous year, of course, in 1936, auto workers occupied the Flint plant for what, 44 days. Student radicals occupy the administration building, you know, the Sunrise Movement occupies congressional offices, but staying in the middle of town in a public space for a long time, that is a significant idea. And it really hadn't happened in America up to that point. So let's talk about that, the, the significance well, of occupying public space in the center of a city for a long time. Well, you know, People's Park, there was in Berkeley, but I would actually point back to the Bonus Army March, um, going back to um, the early days of the depression. And of course that echoed because of the parallel between the Great Depression um, and the large non-responsiveness of the government to the circumstance. Of course, the Bonus Army marriage happened before Roosevelt was president, while Hoover was still president on the, on the Capitol Mall. And of course, it was attacked ultimately by the army led by Douglas MacArthur. Uh, and these were, of course, veterans from World War I who were asking for their bonuses to be advanced to them because of the desperation of the, uh, of the moment economically. So in uh, back to 2011, I always felt that one of the things that played into the success was um, Mayor Bloomberg's reluctance to look worse than Hosni Mubarak. <laughs> um, and uh, so what had happened around the world is that these places, these camps had been set up in Tahrir Square in central Madrid. And um, of course, there were, there were efforts by Mubarak to try to move them out, but ultimately those kept failing and they stayed and stayed at Tahrir Square. And so he, he thought it would just peter out. Um, but it, it, it stayed and it gained momentum and the message started to get amplified and people in the press couldn't really not recognize that this wasn't just uh, initially a sort of ragtag group of people. Uh, it, it was growing and uh, some prominent people were, were applauding it. And within about two weeks time, um, then another thing that really catapulted it was the police aggression on a march that they had where eventually they end up occupying the Brooklyn Bridge. And by that point, this march is huge and people are staying in Zuccotti, so they hold that space. And you might remember they, they sort of um, corralled some people in with this kind of a plastic, uh, um, a little bit like police tape, um, but a little bit larger and they sort of um, hold them in the space. And once they have them in the space, and they start pepper spraying them right in their face. And I remember this was on the John Stewart show and it was on all of the news and people just found it appalling. 
that made it more attractive. And again, as, as the, the scene is having people broadly be sympathetic to the demonstration and the message, the message started to amplify. What happened after that day across the country was nothing short of spectacular. And I really do think this is the, the great moment of Occupy Wall Street. Uh, there, there are a few great things about it, including, of course, the tremendous messaging, the 99%, and the broad and general critique of U.S. finance capitalism. And we'll get to the Obama administration a little later. Let's, let's make sure we focus on that. But the, um, the period from about late September to mid-October, like wildfire across the country, Occupy camps started to appear. And the turnout for the initial organizing events were spectacular. And the attendance, especially on weekends at these camps and the solidarity, the general social solidarity was off the charts. In this phase, public approval for these demonstrations was extremely high. And let and, me say, this wasn't just Los Angeles and San Francisco and places with lots of radicals. This was lots of medium-sized cities, small towns. Uh, the Nation published an article by Mike Davis about Occupy El Centro. Nobody in America even knows where El Centro is. There were 50 or 60 people had an Occupy camp in El Centro, challenging the growers who control Imperial County. Um, it proved to be the idea of occupying public space proved to be incredibly powerful idea all over the place. And, um, you know, there's just some things about it, of course, that that remain um, complicated and, and controversial. Most pointedly, um, the, I would say the way in which the Occupy movement reflected um, the spirit of the anti-globalization movements, not just in their anarchist, non-hierarchical organizing, and those are were very high profile demonstrations. No, let, let's talk about that just for a minute. The idea of a leaderless movement with a horizontal structure also made it very different from the peace movement marches, uh, the political campaigns, um, and, and that sort of thing. So th this was. Yeah. And, and I think a pointed criticism uh, revolved, and I think the public, you could see people starting to lose patience with this, though. Initially, there were people who were complaining about the fact that there wasn't a very clear stated goal. And, and then it gets even more complicated. Uh, unlike the anti that's that's in contrast to the counter-globalization movement of, say, 99 to 2001. Those had pretty clear stated goals. But the degree to which there, it was understood what the goals were, I think there's another problem here in terms of the message that reflects the problems with the 99 to 2001 messages, which is that the messages in so much as they were absorbed by people, uh, were very much reformist. And they were about reforming, you know, high capitalist institutions, 99 to 2001 is the WTO, it's the World, um, the, um, the, the World Bank. Uh, and then in, in 2011, of course, it has to do with reforming the banking system. I mean, these were mass demonstrations with a huge amount of public enthusiasm that you'd see signs about the Glass-Steagall Act. You know, <laughs> so, um, you know, in many respects, then compared to, say, something like the Bernie Sanders uh, campaign in 2016 and 2020, we'll which get there. Are, of course, very informed by Occupy. Um, they in, in some respects, they're somewhat less radical and they don't address the totality of society and social structures and economic distribution yet. Well, well, let me just say one of the claims of Occupy that remains remarkable today is that they they explicitly did not have right. an agenda. Right. They were not proposing legislation. They were not endorsing candidates. They were not arguing programmatic reforms. 
It was, we are the 99%. And we're here to challenge inequality in America. That had its problems, but also it had a, a kind of a refreshing quality that gave it a much broader appeal than if had it focused around policy proposals. Well, let me, and let me point this out then. I don't want to be overly critical. This was one of the most spectacular populist radical responses to the real life circumstances of American society that America has ever seen in the course of American history. And in so much as policy positions were staked out, they clearly were on the radical left. And you saw the general public's consideration of a radical left anti-capitalist critique, though, again, a lot of the policies that are pushed are highly reformist when they do get sort of focused on. But again, how appealing that is and remains appealing to the American public, counter everything you hear in the mainstream media or from mainstream politicians. Okay, I think there's very, there's about four threads I'd love to get to quickly. First of all, the role of the Obama administration just historically understood and occupied. Um, I do think that the absence of demonstrations leading up to Occupy, which in many respects then informs why you do arrive at this kind of far left anti-capitalist critique of politics taking center stage in this large massive demonstration is because I think the Obama administration and the enthusiasm that existed among progressives and certainly the majority of the electric and so much of American society in 2008 really mitigated a negative critique of that administration that would have occurred had it been any other politician in it coming off of any other context. And for what it's worth, I think it's fair to say we can probably say with, with good cause right now, a, a few months into the Joe Biden administration, that Biden as a politician uh, probably would have uh, addressed the crisis in a way that was responsive to people's needs far beyond what we saw from Obama. And um, so there's paradoxes there. Um, but even at the time in, in, in uh, Occupy Wall Street, Obama was not vilified too aggressively. It was more the system, the bankers, et cetera. Um, and again, it's the, it's the historical specificity of uh, Barack Obama, clearly a great hero in the, in the context of the broad history of American race relations, first black president, et cetera. Obviously also a person who, as, as a politician, sort of stays above the fray in the way that he does. Um, so that was a complicated component to this. Um, of course, I want to get to the Sanders campaign, um, and I want to get there by way of what I think Occupy failed at, which was really to produce any tangible results coming off of it. Um, of course, the, the narrative of the decline of Occupy is really wrapped up in some, some conniving uh, sort of police state brutality slash um, the politician police apparatus in the country uh, scheming to, to sweep through the camps. But at the same time, it must be said, and I know the people in Spain, <laughs> they, they did communicate with us about this. They closed their camp down, which was tremendously successful in central Madrid. Um, only a few weeks after Occupy started, that was because what are you thinking occupying public space in winter? You know, it makes mm -hmm. it very difficult. And that really created um, a situation where, you know, people who had homes um, just started to drop out. And then the fact that the largest camps, of course, were located in uh, largely American population centers uh, and near areas where there were a lot of homeless people and uh, understandably people who are unhoused have a lot of, uh, I mean, it's so traumatic psychologically to be in that circumstances. There's a lot of trauma 
and a lot of that kind of energy started to um, enter into the occupied spaces. The deeper and this was, especially this was true, especially in L.A., which we saw uh, up close. L.A. was what about four blocks from Skid Row, very close to Skid Row. And of course, there were people who said that uh, homeless people were getting picked up by the NYPD and dropped into the camp. By the way, the, the actual day of the closing down of Zuccotti Park was it, it is it is a disgraceful episode in American history and really does deserve to be mentioned. Uh, in the way that, you know, the police state uh, apparatus operates uh, uh, above the law, as it were, in the United States. If you look at the details of how that transpired, Zuccotti Park in particular is incredibly, incredibly shameful. They basically kept all the press away, uh, at, at, at many blocks away. And if you do see the limited amount of footage that does exist from the people who are inside the camp, uh, it's a really, 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 really ugly episode as the New York City camp gets shut down. Um, so, um, yes, uh, the, the weather strategic problem there and uh, the winding down of the camps and that that contributed to some public exhaustion with it by the time you get towards um, uh, towards November, uh, only a few months after. But it did. You know, it was so intense an experience. It was such an intense lived experience. I think it was transformative for millions of people's politics in the country. The 99 percent has never gone away as a slogan and occupy in no doubt. Uh, I think uh, inspired was part of what inspired at the time a very marginal uh, radical politician to run for president. Um, Progressive Democrats of America, the organization that I'm now the executive director of, um, was of course the organization that drafted Bernie Sanders to run as a Democrat in the 2016 election. And then the response to Bernie, you know, in the period leading up to the Iowa caucuses and beyond, boy, did it reflect the response, initial response to Occupy. And you really began to see that the politics of Occupy, the politics of the Sanders movement, which have tremendous overlap, are phenomenally popular with the American people. They know that we live in a world that is dominated and effectively run by the financial services, by the investor class now, and uh, people can't stand it, and they shouldn't stand it. It's an unbelievably rotten social contract we have in the United States right now, and we saw an expression of a profound and, and beautiful rebellion against that in Occupy and then coming together of people, the cooperation of people in those initial weeks and even beyond. And I do have to say, I actually have nothing but love and respect for the people who stuck with it as the weather got colder um, and also did try to deal with um, the burden of addressing the needs of the people who are unhoused in the United States of America. I thought that was actually dealt with incredible compassion by the people who were there. One issue that we have not talked about yet is uh, criticism that was raised at the time and more so now, which is that the concept we are the 99% uh, overlooked uh, divisions within the 99% along uh, racial, gender, sexual orientation lines. And of course, those have become much more significant on the left since 2011. Um, yeah, well, I mean, um, I'm glad the slogan exists, and I'm glad then the debate happens with that as an anchor in the debate, because um, I'm very weary of, uh, of people who, um, you know, uh, the wealth distribution across ethnic groups in the United States is basically replicated. Um, so if you look at, you know, a very large uh, sample, say, the Black community in America, and you look at the percent of income and wealth that's owned by the top 10% and then the top 1% of black Americans, and you look at it for white Americans, it replicates itself. Um, so of course, yes, it's true. The whole level of wealth is phenomenally lower 
Um, but uh, we, we do need to look at it in both through both lenses. And of course, the United States of America in particular around race and class, those two, uh, those two uh, framings uh, in the integration of those, those two framings need to be totally included. And I think in that sense, the criticism is, is of course, not invalid. Um, and, uh, and that, um, you know, again, we have this uh, race class matrix that defines uh, American society and economy in, our, in America. Uh, in The Atlantic, there's a piece by Michael Leviton, who's written a history of Occupy. He says, Occupy Wall Street did more in six months to move American politics to the left than the Democratic Party had done in six decades. Uh, uh, Progressive Democrats of America is part of this transformation, and the rise of the Progressive Caucus is part of it. I wonder if you think that's an exaggeration or if you think that's pretty accurate. Well, six decades may be a little bit a little bit too long because I mean that would seem to then absorb uh, the Great Society years and you know up through sixty five. So uh, maybe it's a little short of that, but yeah, sure. I don't. But I would also say I think six months is too long. I think it, it achieved that in six weeks. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean I think there were a lot of people who had a lot of love for Occupy Wall Street in the years following that. Um, and I think for I think it's fair to say that the, that love did get largely absorbed into the rise of the progressive left in electoral formation uh, with the Sanders campaigns going forward with the rise of the squad, et cetera. And um, and of course, with the with the um, greater ethnic diversity of the squad and the, and the left wing, even the left wing of the progressive caucus in Congress right now, um, you know, the, the issues around not addressing uh, race and race matters and diversity matters in Occupy and the Sanders campaign has a great rejoinder with uh, leadership, obviously coming from the, you know, clearly the squad members, et cetera. But the, um, I do want to point in a little bit personalize this too. How does somebody go from somebody who was involved in the counter globalization movements in 99 to 2001, Occupy again, even before the event started and with real heart, um, uh, you know, and one of the people, by the way, I knew was, was one of the lead organizers in, in, in New York, um, uh, who I knew a little bit before I got to know him more later was David Graeber. So this is a very anarchist inflected stuff. Um, how do you end up then uh, as the ED of Progressive Democrats of America? And I do think it's because um, you go through 2012, 2013, 2014, you see people try to continue uh, spinoffs from Occupy. And with the exception really of the debt collective, which addresses uh, student debt uh, matters and, and, and general debt holdings of households in the United States, very few of those spinoffs had any legs. And in terms of impacting public policy, uh, this incredible explosion of, of uh, uh, public sentiment, uh, the impact materially was very small, if at all. And, um, and, and as such, it's almost worse than that because all this energy goes towards nothing. And you then learn the lesson of the right wing in America which is if you want to change the way the society operates, this is why they have invested millions and billions. I would bet you they're up to trillions. They have to be right now from the Powell memo forward into taking over the government. Markets are social constructs and they are social contracts created by the state. The state has, of course, in our society, um, a monopoly on violence, legal violence. And um, so they set the terms. I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, it goes all the way to that, that element. And, and that's how markets are enforced and the parameters of the markets are determined by the people who govern. And somehow in the period from 
after the 1960s, all the way through Occupy, the left in the United States, it's almost became blind to that fact. Now, but, he, but in a weird way, because again, you see they, that the, the counter-globalization movement was itself a reform movement uh, on things that were determined ultimately by elected officials. Yes, there's a lot of ceding to the authority of the financial institutions, but they, they, so they can take over the structures of government. So we fat, fight back. And right now we're in a phase where we can see if the left can achieve control of government. That's the offensive right now. Um, we'll see how it goes and we'll see what the lessons are learned, what lessons will be learned if it fails. Um, and, um, but again, any other route to improve the lives of people, public policy, save the planet from global warming, uh, and really uh, overcome, um, first of all, the worst impacts of capitalism, and then setting the table to maybe move towards something like a truly positive socialism. I think the route right now clearly is through um, the electoral arena. And that's a lesson learned by the brilliance, um, the attractiveness of Occupy, and its failings and the absence of any positive res concrete results to come out of it. Alan Minsky of Progressive Democrats of America. They're online at pdamerica.org. Alan, this has been terrific. Thank you for talking with us today. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. One more thing about the legacy of Occupy. Occupy famously did not make policy proposals, but several policy proposals came out of Occupy, which exists today, and the Nation magazine has re recently run a rundown of where we stand on various Occupy-inspired uh, ideas. First, of course, is the wealth tax. Occupy highlighted the vast disparities between the very rich and the 99%, not just the huge gap in incomes of top earners, but the chasm between how much wealth the rich are able to stow away, which has grown so much in the last few years, even since Occupy. The idea of a wealth tax uh, was popularized not long ago by Senator Elizabeth Warren, who put it in the heart of her run for the president in 2020. So far, the Congress has not done anything to create a wealth tax, and it looks like that won't be uh, in what we're calling the Reconciliation Bill, even though it was talked about as something that belonged in the Reconciliation Bill. States haven't acted on the idea either, even though last year California considered a new tax on rich residents' net worth. Then there's also the question of higher taxes on the wealthy, one obvious way to address income inequality. Uh, tax top incomes use the revenue to provide social services and support for everyone else. This is a part, although not a huge part, of the reconciliation bill that's currently coming out of the House and heading for the Senate. The average federal tax rate on the top 1% of households rose 6% under Obama, but then Trump cut it back, Democrats are now considering what they call tax fairness for high-income individuals, 
as one way of paying for all the social programs in the reconciliation package. Uh, almost certainly they'll restore the Obama level uh, income tax rates for high earners. Um, and some states have taken action in the action in the interim. California, New Jersey, and New York have all increased taxes on millionaires. And Hawaii right now is considering legislation that would increase the top tax rate for their state to 16%. That would be the highest state income tax rate in the country. Also inspired by Occupy, I would say, is the $15 minimum wage. Um, just a year after protesters occupied Zuccotti Park, the Fight for 15 movement was launched, demanding a minimum wage of $15 an hour plus the right to unionize, and it's had astonishing success since then. Ten states in Washington, D.C. have now passed legislation to raise their minimum wages to $15. <coughs> and dozens of cities have done the same thing, especially the biggest cities, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco. Obama wasn't too great on this. Uh, he supported a $9 minimum wage, but by 2016, four years after the launch of the Fight for 15, the $15 minimum wage was included in the Democratic uh, platform. Uh, it is not yet law, even though the Democrats, of course, control the White House and both houses of Congress right now. Biden, however, did take executive action to increase federal contractors' pay to $15 an hour, and that affects at least a quarter of a million people. Student loan forgiveness or cancellation is another child of Occupy. Um, strike debt came out of Occupy Wall Street. Uh, and their statement was, debt is a tie that binds the 99%. Eliminating student debt was a core principle of a lot of Occupy Wall Street protesters. Um, they have been demanding the elimination of all student debt. And of course, that has not happened. The government has gone back and forth on this. Obama allowed students who were defrauded by for-profit colleges to have their debts forgiven. That eliminated $600 million in debt. The Trump administration at first refused to carry out that program and then made it nearly impossible for students to access it. Biden has now reversed course and has canceled $1.5 billion in debt for students defrauded by poor by for-profit institutions since he took office. Free college is another idea that came out of the Occupy Student Debt campaign, uh, kind of another uh, kind of a spin-off of student loan forgiveness, uh, public education, public higher education should be free. And since 2011, 16 states have launched statewide programs to make college tuition free for students at at least two-year institutions, community college. It's an idea that has gotten some support from federal lawmakers, although they haven't passed legislation yet establishing two years of free college. Um, there is a bill in Congress that's been introduced there, two years of free community college for all, that President Biden made part of his American Families Plan. Those are some of the ways that 
Occupy has given rise to and taken concrete form in policy proposals which are currently under consideration or have been established by in some ways in some parts in some states of America. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.